Hello, and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. This is Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. Today, we are so excited to welcome Cory Doctorow, the author of Radicalized, which is a contender on the 2020 Canada Reads shortlist. Thank you for joining us. How are you surviving the pandemic? Well, you know, like like that, that um, CBC competition that challenged people to finish the sentence as Canadian as dot, 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 and the winning entry was possible under the circumstances. That's kind of my answer to everything at this point. <laughs> we are surviving as well as possible under the circumstances. And the grand scheme of things, we're doing super well, right? Um, both of us have jobs we can do from home, my wife and I. Uh, our daughter, although she's very stir crazy, is is doing well with distance ed with her local middle school. And, you know, the summer vacation is nearly on us. She's just got two more weeks of school. And, and so, you know, the homeschooling lift is nearly done. That said, you know, we're super anxious and worried and stressed out and worried about money. And we've both taken significant pay cuts. And I have three books out in 2020 and no idea whether there will even be bookstores to sell them in. Certainly all six of the tours I was planning in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. and Germany are all canceled. So uh, I'm not really sure <laughs> exactly how I'm doing. But compared to people who are like, either you show up at your badly paid job where you don't get PPE and then risk dying and killing your whole family or will make you starve to death like the people in Ohio or the people who are in jail who are being told, yeah, you have to sleep 18 inches from someone else and we're going to cycle people in and out and we don't have to give you soap. Uh, we're doing really well. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's Rebecca here. Uh, that That's a mouthful, but it's so true because I, you know, Sean and I both work in a public library and we're funded um, through this fiscal year and we're both receiving our full pay. And that's the thing I think about all the time are the people who aren't as lucky to be in the situation I'm, I'm, that we're in. And I'm mindful of that all the time. And so I try not to complain at all. And I try not to sort of brag about how well we're kind of doing in, in all of this because a lot of people worldwide are not. So anyway, but thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And you know, I have to say that like, it's uh, it, 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 trauma's trauma, right? Like, tra like uh, I, my, both of my, my grandmother and my grandfather went through significant trauma in the war. And by any objective measure, my grandmother went through significantly worse trauma than my grandfather. My grandfather held up a lot worse, right? He, he ended up uh, getting divorced when they came to the country and died a traumatized, depressed alcoholic. So it's not, it's not merely a function of what happens to you. It's the intersection of what happens to you and your resilience to it, which is some combination of your genetics and your upbringing and your other circumstances. So, you know, you have the right to feel worried <laughs> because it's a worrisome time right now, especially to work for the public sector, as you as you say you do, but, but you know, even for, for anyone. Yeah, because one of the things we are working on right now is the plan on how how do we reopen public libraries, which are all about community and and people being in there and close knit ties and everything. And you know, it's that's the part where right now I'm we're just sort of going through the process of planning, and then it's going to be holy crap when we open the doors and people start coming in. That's when I think all of our stress will ratchet up quite high. But anyway, so. Yeah, no, no kidding. I'm a recovering library worker <gasps> myself, so I have a lot of sympathy. Oh, I okay. In all of the stuff I read about you, I didn't know that. So, wh when was that, or where was it? And uh, so I was a cataloger in middle school. I was a page in high school, 
and I worked at both a school library and a main branch library as a page. That's awesome. All right. Well, we're all connected here. That, that's really fantastic. So we're going to go ahead and get started with our questions. And the first question I have for you is it's kind of about your writing specifically, but uh, I believe you've released most of your books for free online and they're also available to purchase in paper. And can you talk a little bit about your philosophy and having them available in both formats? Well, so let's start with like the, the real politique, which is that even if you don't release your books as free downloads, anyone who doesn't want to pay for them can get them for free, right? Uh, you know, that, and that, I'm not just talking about like the Overdrive app that your local library has, right? I mean, the only thing worse than your books being available online for free on pirate sites is not being online for free because they're so uninteresting that nobody even wants to steal them. <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 all out there and the food coloring is not coming out of the swimming pool. You know, the the idea that like in the future it will somehow be harder for people to copy stuff is uh, it's it's like to call it wishful thinking is to is to do violence to to poor, innocent, wishful thinking. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, as a like a starting point. I was like, okay, my books are going to be available for free anyway. And so this implies that everyone who's going to buy uh, an ebook or decide to get a print book when they, when they would be just as happy with an ebook is going to do so voluntarily, right? They're going to do so because uh, they've decided that it's the right thing to do. And so this, this raises this question, how do you know what the right thing to do is? And how do you convince people that the right thing to do is to support your career? Well, some authors have taken the approach that they will terrorize people into voluntarily supporting their careers by threatening to take their houses away uh, through punitive lawsuits if they catch them reading their books the wrong way. Um, I think that worked moderately well for Metallica and the Napster age, but I don't think it's much of a strategy these days. Um, there are other writers who just pretend it's not happening. And then there are writers who are like, look, you know, I know you're going to do it. I'm going to give you the chance to do it and then go out and buy it if it if it suits you. And to illustrate why you should, I'm going to I'm going to show you that I'm the kind of person who's reasonable enough to understand that that's a good value proposition. So far that's worked well, right? I my my publisher put an end to the practice a couple of books ago. Those books have neither sold better nor worse. Uh it's been about the same. I've had some books that sell really well and I've had some books that sell moderately well. They they go up and down. In general, they've trended up. Uh and um it's not seemingly not related to that other question. What is definitely related to that question, the thing that I hear most often in respect of, of letting people download books for free under Creative Commons licenses is people who come up to me and they say, this is so not my thing, but a friend of mine sent me a link to it. And because it didn't cost me anything to try it, I bought it and now you're my favorite author. And I don't know how much those people move the needle in terms of overall sales, but I do think that like being the favorite author of a bunch of people is um, in terms of the longevity of your career really important. Right? Those are the people who go to bat for you when, when, things, are, when, when things are bad. They, they may not make much of a difference when things are good, but when you're like, I've lost my medical insurance and I have cancer and I need people to help bail me out, those are the people who show up for you. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's hurting me and I do think it helps me in the long run. Well, okay, I have a really stupid question because I, you know, I know the whole pirating music thing and back in the day and all that, but I didn't know seriously that you could just, I could just get people's books for free. How would I have been doing that? I guess I never knew that. Type type uh, book name space author name space ebook space free into Google and hit return. 
Okay. <laughs> Seriously, I'm a 25-year librarian, and who I didn't know that. I mean, I knew music you could, but I didn't know you could do that with books. Sure. So look, look wow. I mean, bits is bits, right? Once, once, once it's slithering around in the digiverse, uh, it just it just shows up, you know. And and like, okay, sure, some books are not available as free downloads. Those are literally the books that no one cares about enough to steal and share, right? <laughs> Yeah. I, and you know when I started doing this, it was like it was in the days before there were ebooks, right? This was in the days when publishers didn't release ebooks, and uh, so the way that online ebooks were showing up was that people would take home a book and scan it, right? So they would like literally buy an extra copy of the book, slice the binding off of it, and lay each page one page at a time on a scanner, and then OCR it, and then correct the OCR errors. And that is not a thing you do except for books that you love so much that you think everyone needs to read them. I've actually seen television commercials or web commercials commercializing a new machine that will actually flip the page of the book. You don't even have to take the binding off the book anymore. Yeah. So it will flip it and scan it, and that was just within the last six months. Well, there have been machines like that for for quite a while now, but but you're right that that you know that that's an area where they they keep having breakthroughs. I mean, one presumes that eventually that taps out because eventually, like one of the things about scanning books is that once you scanned a book, like nobody else has to scan the book, right? Because <laughs> now it's a digital <laughs> file, right? right? So like eventually, once everyone has scanned at least one copy of the book and put it somewhere where everyone else can see it, like we probably don't even need those machines anymore. Well, okay, that explains a lot because here is the deal. I'm a rule follower and I work in a public library, so I've just been getting my books from the public library for the last, my whole life, pretty much. So no wonder I didn't know all of that, but holy, oh, well, whatever. I can't believe, I mean, it's crazy. Well, and so, you know, here's the, here's the corollary of that, which is that like, in some ways, free eBooks are sort of an indictment of li the library system's ability to reach people who like eBooks. Because, you know, to the extent that free eBooks are falling off, mostly they're just falling off because you can get an eBook for free over the internet uh, using your library, right? I mean, that would be the only reason, like, to, to see a drop off, right? And, and yeah, you know, there are obviously there's shenanigans that the big five publishers have played with new releases in ebooks in library collections. Um, but older releases, you know, they're, they're a lot easier to get hold of. You know, Macmillan's softened on this stuff too. And, and, and yeah, so I, I think that like, in some ways it kind of doesn't matter uh, in terms of um, the octorial bottom line here, because uh, if the, if the, if what happens is that instead of going to Overdrive and checking out the book, you go to the ebook bay and download the book, but no one else checks out the book, so it's not busied out. So it's still sitting there on the virtual shelf in the library, which is to say it doesn't incentivize the library to buy another copy. Then the author is not seeing any more or less money. It's just a wash. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, you really opened my eyes on that, and I'm embarrassed to say that I did not realize all of that. So anyway, we'll move to the no next. reason to be embarrassed. It's, that's that's cool. You know, like like learning new stuff is awesome. I agree, hundred percent. I agree with that. Okay, the next question is kind of related to Canada Reads because you are one of the books. Uh, your book Radicalized is one of the books in the competition for this year, and hopefully we get to hear the competition and see it at some point this year. But 
Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, yeah, no kidding for all of us. Uh, One of the comments that has come up repeatedly in the Canada Reads Facebook page is that because Radicalized is set in the U.S., the book doesn't fit this year's theme of one book to bring Canada into focus. How would you respond to that point of view? So I have a pre-coronavirus answer and a post-coronavirus answer. My pre-coronavirus answer is that like in the same way that um, the unpopular kid at school knows more about what all the popular kids are doing than the popular kids do because they don't even notice them standing there in the corner kind of clocking what everyone else is doing. Canadians just understand Americans the way in a way that Americans don't. This is why like America's most beloved American comedians are all Canadians. You know, um, it, it's that ability specifically like that ability to poke fun, for example, is is a thing that you get when you are uh, outside. And, you know, it is inescapable in Canadian culture to uh, the, the relationship that, um, that Canada has with America. Like everything is either defined as a um, as as a distinction from America or a similarity to America or, you know, often as a slide into Americanness. You know, my, my, my dad was a refugee who came to Canada not speaking English when he was a kid, but he learned English. And then all his life, he's had this weird kind of averse reaction to what he perceives as Americanisms as a kind of creeping colonialism into Canadian English. And a lot of those um, so-called Americanisms are actually not Americanisms at all. They're, they're things like old Anglicisms and so on. Um, no one, no one, you know, there is no like hardly, def- you know, rigidly defined Canadian English versus American English. There, there is a lot of crossover. But, you know, Canadians are like super phobic about this. So that's my like pre-coronavirus answer, right? Like to understand Canada, you have to understand America. My post-coronavirus answer is like, forget all of that stuff. I wrote a story about a, what happens when technology is monopolized and everything you do is mediated by technology and you have no control over it. B, what happens when you have um, out-of-control racist authoritarianism and uh, the only answer we have to it is individual action is the only solution to it because we're not allowed to look at systemic solutions. C, about what happens when the uh, public health care system is turned over to the private sector during a crisis. And D, what happens when rich people decide that they no longer have to... Uh, uh, think about the destiny of the human race because because they can effectively secede from the human race in times of pandemic and crisis, right? Like, if there was ever a book about Canada in this current moment, you know, it doesn't matter where it, it could be set on Mars and it would still be about Canada in this present moment. <laughs> I 100% agree. And in fact, it's really funny because I said if they had held the competition prior And I'm going to be really candid because I actually am on record as having said this in one of our podcasts, but I had said at the time prior to the, to the pandemic, that if the competition had been held, I think your book would have been voted off first because a lot of Canadians of the people I read on the Facebook page and and some of my friends, they're kind of like, well, it's not, you know, it's not a story about Canada. How does that bring Canada into focus? And I think it could have been voted off first because I could see that being a legit reason why somebody would vote it off. After that, I said, no, I highly think that you will win the competition because of what you just said. It's yeah, a, yeah. You're, all four stories resonate to this time period in just such an amazing way. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 yeah. I mean, I keep saying cyberpunk is not a suggestion. It's a warning. But, you know, as, as, as my friend uh, Joey DeVilla, who's a Canadian who lives in Florida now, likes to say, when life gives you SARS, you make SARS-Barilla. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god okay well then the next questions are going to be kind of related to some of the, well all four of the novellas so the first one i want to talk about uh i had read an article that you wrote for publishers weekly in 2010 titled dr o's first law and can you tell us about the law and i'm curious about whether the article was the genesis of the first novella unauthorized bread because it seemed real connected yeah Sure. So yeah, Dr. O's first law is that anytime someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you and won't give you the key, that lock is not there for your benefit. And I, if I recall that specific column correctly, because I've, I've talked about this for a long time, it was about Audible, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, controls 90% of the audiobook market and will probably exit from the crisis owning more like 100% of the audiobook market, the way things are going. And, and um, when Audible was acquired by Amazon, they were at the time using digital rights management, DRM, which is like a copyright lock that uh, is under both Canadian and U.S. locks. It's a felony to remove that lock, even if you're not breaking the law, even if you're not breaking copyright law. So like if I get an audible book of my own book that I own the copyright to and I take the lock off, I commit a felony, even though it's my copyright, because the lock owner can stop me from removing the lock. And... Um, Amazon itself had just gone on this huge campaign against DRM. Uh, Apple had been using DRM for iTunes and they had come to dominate the online music market. And what um, DRM let Apple do was lock all the music to its platform. So you can only play Apple music on Apple devices running Apple software. And so Amazon needed a way to differentiate itself from Apple. And they knew that the record labels who kind of insisted on DRM in the first place as a way of protecting themselves, uh, that um, the record labels were not happy with this because Apple wasn't letting them decide what price their music would be sold at or how it would be sold or whether it could be bundled or unbundled or what have you. And so um, I, uh, Amazon said, we're going to sell music as MP3s. And they put out all these like um, DR anti-DRM posters that said, don't restrict me, DRM, and had pictures of people wearing big DJ headphones looking cool. And um, uh, when they bought Audible, they were like, we're going to totally get rid of Audible's DRM. But they never did. And um, with Apple's ebook store, with uh, Amazon's ebook store, with the Kindle store, you can choose as the publisher whether or not you have DRM. My publisher doesn't put DRM on any of the books they sell on Amazon. But as an audiobook publisher, you do not get to choose. And when you ask Audible about this, they're like, we just want to protect artists. Well, first of all, it's not hard to remove DRM, right? It's like, again, you type into Google, how do I remove the DRM from my Audible books? I mean, it's not hard at all, right? Or if you're feeling even lazier, it's like, where do I download audiobooks that someone's removed the DRM from, right? Like, like you don't even have to do the first part, right? You can just skip straight to the second part. Um, but second of all, when the person who owns the copyright to the audiobook shows up and says, I don't want this, and you say, no, 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 it's for your protection, you can be pretty sure it's not for your protection. Right? Someone who puts a lock on something that belongs to you and won't give you the key is not putting that lock on there to protect you. They're putting that lock on there to protect themselves. And what, what Audible wants to do is corner the market. And that's exactly what they have done. And then it gives them titanic market power. Like if, if Audible ever decides that they don't like an author or a publisher or an imprint and they just delist them, no one will ever see their audiobooks anymore because there's only one place people look for audiobooks. I can tell you that because my audiobooks are sold on my site, on Google Play, on Libro.fm, and on Downpour, which are the non-audible uh, non audiobook stores. And they don't sell very well as yeah. audiobooks. They sell okay, but not great. 
And, there, and my, my, my agent tells me I've left enough money to have bought an entire house on the table by refusing to sell through Audible. Wow. Right. And so that lock is definitely not there for your benefit. And those locks have proliferated. So when the law that, that um, safeguards those locks was passed in the U.S. in 1998, there weren't many technologies that qualified. There was like DVD players and Sega Dreamcasts and old Nintendos and whatever. But as software has disappeared into devices, right, as devices have all gotten smart and therefore they have a copyrighted work inside of them, which is to say their software, then the software lock becomes kind of a restriction on how you're allowed to use it. It, it becomes it takes on the force of law because removing the lock is illegal. So if you design a product so that you have to remove the lock to use it in ways that displease your shareholders, then anyone who removes the lock and displeases your shareholders breaks the law. So you can bootstrap this old law into basically felony contempt of business model, where doing things that displease shareholders, even if they're good for you, and even if they never violate copyright, can become a felony. And this is why, for example, farmers can't fix their own tractors anymore, because to activate a new engine part that you install yourself you either have to have the technician come out and type an unlock code into your tractor's keyboard, or you have to bypass the lock, and bypassing the lock is a felony. So your $600,000 tractor that you need to get out in the field because there's a hailstorm coming and you need to uh, bring in your crop, you cannot bring out into the field, even if it has all the working parts it needs and they're all correctly installed, because John Deere hasn't collected their $170 for dispatching a technician to type an unlock code into your keyboard. And if you work around that, you commit a felony. And the person who provides you with the tool to do that commits a felony that's punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. So what we've seen is this proliferation of these locks in juicers, in car engines, in iPhone parts, in implanted pacemakers, in implanted insulin pumps, um, in uh, uh, toaster ovens, light bulbs. You know, Philips uh, changed the firmware on their light bulb sockets so that they would only accept original Philips light bulbs and not third-party smart light bulbs, right? So, so putting your own light bulb in your own light bulb socket becomes a felony, right? So like this is, you know, in the same way that like the fable of the frog and the scorpion, we shouldn't be surprised when when the scorpion stings us when we're halfway across the, the, the river. We shouldn't be surprised when they're like sociopathic, you know, transhuman colony organisms called limited liability corporations that view us as their inconvenient gut flora decide to like abuse us. Right. But we should be really legitimately angry at the lawmakers who failed to perceive that that was going to happen. But do you think they, they failed to perceive that it was going to happen versus they're in bed with all of it? Well, you know, that's a good question, right? Like um, in the U.S., the sponsors of the bill were people who'd taken a lot of movies, money from the movie industry, but I think only expected it to show up in the movie industry, like it was Barney Frank, right, who, who was the sponsor of the bill in the U.S. In Canada, it was the, the bill was shepherded through by a couple of conservative uh, ministers, um, Tony Clement, and uh, James Moore, who is the, the MP from Coquitlam, and I actually got into a fight with James Moore on Twitter about it when he was pushing the bill through. Because, you know, like to pass this law in 1998, you may think, OK, this is just going to be a scam that affects DVD players and games consoles. And like, that's bad, but it's not like an existential threat to the agricultural system or people who have implanted pacemakers. Right. But but Tony Clement should have known better. James Moore should have known better. So I picked this fight with him on Twitter and James Moore comes back at me and he says, look, if you buy an iPad 
and you don't want to get your apps from the App Store, you shouldn't have bought an iPad. I was like, wait, 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 wait. You're conservative. Like, don't you believe in private property? Like, don't, don't, like, isn't that the bedrock of your philosophy that I bought it and so I owned it and I get to use it however I want to, right? Like, how is it that the cold, dead hand of the manufacturer gets to rest on my private property, ready to punch me in the mouth if I do anything that makes their shareholders sad? Like, how is that a conservative ideology? And after I won the argument, he blocked me on Twitter and now his Twitter account's <laughs> private. So, you know, uh... <laughs> But, but you know, he got the last laugh because it's the law of the land in Canada. So there you go. Do you see it ever changing or do you think it's just going to get worse? Because this is really frightening when you talk about it to the level that you're talking. I mean, it's one thing to read, read authorized bread and you go, oh, wow. And you and I knew that some of these things, but I didn't know like about the tractors, for example. So is this going to just get continue to get worse? Is there any way to pre prevent it or change it? So, yeah, that's. Super good question, and it's a hard one to answer because, uh, you know, I'm not a fortune teller and science fiction writers who pretend they know the future are either self-deluded or despicable <laughs> hucksters. So um, I uh, here's what I think. I think that like the, the problem with that, the challenge of any problem that's off in the future is something that I call peak indifference. Right. Which is to say that, like. If there's a problem that's a long way off in the future, it's hard to be animated by it. It's hard to even know if it's real, right? Like someone says, oh, if you keep smoking that cigarette, you're going to get cancer. It's like, well, how do you know? Like, we can't even tell. Like, lots of people get cancer. Who can be sure, right? Like, all of this kind of, you know, doubt, right? Some of which is legitimate. And then the other thing is, if your problem has a business model, right? Like, if not solving the problem is making someone rich, they can take some of the money that they're making from not solving the problem and spend it to confuse people. So you see that with like the oil industry sowing confusion about climate change. Now there comes a point where people just stop being indifferent to the problem, not because activists have convinced them the problem is real, but because the problem has made it uh, abundantly clear that, oh my goodness, is it ever real? So think about pandemics, right? There have been people who've been beating the drum about pandemics forever. I, I'm trying to, I, let me just look up the name of this person. There's this woman, uh, Pulitzer winning journalist who uh, in 1994 wrote a bestseller called something like The Coming Pandemic, right? Who's been, who's been at it for forever. I, what's her name? Here she is. Um, uh, uh, Lori Garrett, right? Wrote this book called The Coming Plague in 1994 that was a bestseller. And she's been beating the drum saying, look, we have super interconnected populations. We have a healthcare system that we fund like a restaurant that like depends on, uh, you know, people coming in for Sunday brunch, right? So like all the money in the healthcare system comes from elective procedures and not like a fire department, right? Where it's provision for things that almost never happen, but when they do, you want to be ready. Yeah. And we need to take this seriously. That was in 1994, right? And we had SARS and we had Ebola and we still didn't take her seriously. In, in 2006, no, 2004, uh, California Governor Schwarzenegger, a phrase I still feel weird saying, he apportioned $200 million for a medical stockpile to fight the next SARS epidemic. They bought thousands of battery-powered uh, ventilators. They bought um, millions of N95 masks. They bought two complete mobile hospitals that could be located anywhere in the state in a matter of hours. 
and uh, tens of thousands of hospital beds that could turn any community hall or school gymnasium into a hospital in a matter of hours. In 2008, after the financial crisis, when California had its budget shortfall, they decided to save the $5 million a year it was costing uh, to pay for the warehouses and the battery chargers for the ventilators. And they, they gave them all away to surplus vendors who sent them oh, all wow. overseas, right? So, you know, th this is what peak indifference looks like because today, right, or tomorrow, right, in a year, when the pandemic is over, if the pandemic is over, and we start stockpiling, and then they go like, you know, we need to save like a tenth of an eighth of a percent on our annual state budget by getting rid of our coronavirus stockpile. Everyone around is going to be like, don't be an idiot. We need to hang on to that. Right. So that is the thing. But here's the other thing. When peak indifference comes too late, then it's too late. Right. The, it would be much better if our peak indifference moment had been hit during the say uh, Ebola crisis or the SARS crisis, because then in 2008, we wouldn't have gotten rid of all of our ventilators, right? So this is my fear, is that by the time we turn around and we say, look, it is too, it is too bad that this is going on. Too many of our devices are being designed in this way. Um, one of the consequences we didn't even talk about for, for these rules, these rules against bypassing copyright locks, is that security researchers who bypass a copyright lock to figure out whether the technology you trust with your life is secure potentially commit felonies because tinkering with the software lock, the copyright lock is against the law. Apple is suing a security research firm for making a device that helps people audit the security of iPhones because they've done this, right? Now, an insecure iPhone puts hundreds of millions of people at risk. Wow. So, you know, there are going to be people who are going to be really pissed off about this law, but it may be after there are so many of these devices, unaudited, unauditable, designed to work over the objections of their owners, designed to be opaque to those owners, that it's too late for us to do something about it, right? That both economically and in terms of our cybersecurity, we are in serious trouble. And so one of the reasons I write stories like this is to try and hasten the moment of peak indifference, right? To, to give people that silent spring experience where something that seems very abstract and far away and not urgent is made to feel urgent and personal. Now, at the same time, there are other approaches we need to take. I work for a 501c3 member-supported charitable nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We're 30 years old, and we're suing the U.S. government on behalf of a couple of researchers to overturn this part of the law because we, we argue that it's unconstitutional. And it's a very slow procedure. It's been slowed down even more by coronavirus. But we think that there is a moderate chance that we can get rid of this law. And at the same time, the right to repair movement has found an angle on this law that has incentivized a lot of people to get involved. And so, you know, the farmers are really involved in right to repair. Um, the coronavirus epidemic actually made right to repair a lot more um, uh, 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 immediate for people. Because if you think about why farmers care about the right to repair, it's like when you're at the end of a lonely country road and your stuff breaks, you have to like wait a long time for someone to come and fix it. Well, coronavirus puts every hospital at the end of a long, lonely country road, right? A road that's very far away from the authorized service depot, which might be in China. And so this is why you have in Italy people like 3D printing parts for ventilators. Because, you know, yeah, that might not be as good as the part that the manufacturer sells. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. But even if it's not, it's better than not having the part during a pandemic. And so right to repair has suddenly taken on this amazing urgency that is driving people to this broader cause 
of, you know, you might call it like technological self-determination, the, the right to decide which technology you use and how you use it. Wow. Um, that is a lot to think about, but it's, it's, I think a lot of interesting things. And then one of my questions, and so I'll, I'll maybe hold off a little bit, but one of my questions at the end is about the pandemic. And I do think some things are going to change as a result of it. So I'm hope, hopeful that that you're successful with your 501c3 uh, lawsuit and all of that, uh, because this is really, I mean, this is just so mind blowing and disturbing. And, you know, I, I kind of, I don't know if it was you or someone else I was reading about, you know, it's like every time we accept those, you know, it'll say blah, 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 accept the, you know, I accept, because if you don't accept, you can't continue to do whatever it is you're doing. It's, it's pages and pages and pages of stuff that we don't even know what we're accepting anyway, but we all just do it. And so it's probably, all that kind of stuff is buried in places where we're not, where we're, where we're meant to not read it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and they all say like, this is subject to change without notice, right? Why would you ever even bother to read it if it's yeah. subject to change without notice? It's like, yeah, I digested this 20,000 word garbage <laughs> novella of legalese. Uh, but now I have to read another one tomorrow. You won't even tell me which bits you changed, just that it's changed. You know, every like, I don't know if you saw, there was just um, everyone who's on Twitter just got a notice saying, hey, we changed our privacy policy. See if you can figure out how, right? <laughs> <laughs> I really loved Model Minority. There was a part of the book, a part of the story that I really loved specifically, but I'm going to ask you a more broad question about it. But so in Model Minority, are you suggesting that superheroes are no longer relevant and have we outgrown our need for a savior? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's more like um, the the literally childish fantasy that gave us Superman, right? So Superman was created by a couple of kids, one of them a Canadian, living in uh, in New York, who were worried about the rise of fascism over the Atlantic. Yeah. You know, a couple of Jewish kids who just wanted like a golem, you know, to go and punch Nazis until the Nazis stopped, right? This is like, this is the thing that kids want and that the childish part of ourselves want, right? They want big systemic problems to have relatively simple individual answers, right? Like, you know, I'm, I feel terrible and anxious about climate change. I wish that if I was attentive enough to my recycling that I could end climate change. The answer that the reality is that like, your individual actions about racism may make a difference to the people around you, but they won't stop racism. And your individual actions in your blue bin are not going to stop climate change. That these are systemic problems. And like the way we beat Nazis was not by having an immortal golem fly across the Atlantic and punch Nazis until they quit. It was like the largest collective action uh, that the human race has ever undertaken, right? The, the single largest pulling together we've ever had. Millions and millions of people joined a side and fought together, you know, most of them voluntarily. Um, and so that's that's um, kind of the lesson of the story. And also that, you know, to, to stand up for America is a complicated thing. And that people who have always believed in America and are starting to understand that there are deep structural flaws in the American way of life and who are showing up and saying, all right, I love my country, but I want to fix this stuff, that it is totally legitimate for the people who are on the, the wrong end of that transaction for all the years that, that you were blithely convinced that America was the land of the free and the home of the brave to say, what took you so long, right? Did you not see when 
they shot us dead in the street and then blamed us for being thugs. Did you not see redlining? Did you not see the cross burnings? Like, why? I mean, thanks for showing up. Yeah. Where have you been all this time? And that's that's really, I think, the the lesson of 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 um, model minority. Yeah, because the part that I really loved, my favorite part of the story was when uh, Wilbur says to the American Eagle, you know, where were you during the civil rights movement? And I, and it sort of was funny to me because it, when you think about comic books and the, sort of the history of them, and I know a little bit about it, but not a lot. And I thought to myself, yeah, when all of that stuff was going on, were there were there heroes at that time in comic books fighting, you know, for the good cause against racism, et cetera, or was it mostly just like bad evil characters that they were trying to, you know, dispatch or whatever. But I just loved when he said that, because it was like a, like stop you in your tracks kind of moment where, you know, what was he, how was he supposed to respond? Do you know what I mean? I like, I love that part of the story. And some comics, comics creators were really alive to this, right? Like X-Men is really uh, you know, a story about eugenics, right? It's 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 about um, being a minority and and uh, being targeted for your for your genetic identity, um, and so it's you know it's not like it's not like there there isn't a strain of this in 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 comics themselves, but there is also an enormous amount of kind of Batmanism, which is really just like you know what what this world needs is a billionaire who's also a military contractor to make some really cool weapons and just punch the bad guys with the cool weapons until the bad guys all go away. And, you know, like Bruce Wayne is definitely part of the problem. He is not part of the solution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, now, the next story in the book is radicalized, and it speaks to our appalling healthcare system in the US. And in light of the current pandemic and with so many people being hospitalized now and probably facing huge bills when they get out, do you think this will move us any closer to universal healthcare like most first world countries have? Well, so this is a really good question. You know, Rebecca Solnit, who's like one of my literary and ideological heroes, the yeah, I she uh, coined the term mansplaining, and and you guys may not know this as women, but mansplaining <laughs> is when a man explains something to a woman that you already know. Anyway, um, but she's also she's this amazing historian and writer and essayist, and she wrote this beautiful essay in the Guardian about the the coronavirus crisis, and she said, you know, in medical terms, when a doctor says you are at a crisis, it's the crossroads, and at the from the crossroads, you either die or you recover. And I think that's the moment that we're at in so many of the deep structural flaws in our civilization. We are at a crossroads between recovery and the, the road to collapse. So if you think about what's happening in the healthcare system now, one of the things that's going on is that um, the smaller practices are collapsing, right? Because they may, as I said before, they, they operate like restaurants, right? They make all their money from elective procedures, from Sunday brunch, and not like fire departments, right? Where they, their money is based on, their funding is based on being prepared for the emergency when it comes. And those smaller practices are going to end up being gobbled up by big hospital systems, which are owned by private equity companies mm -hmm. who have made their bread and butter by, by off of tactics like um, surprise billing where they have a hospital that's covered by your insurer, but the doctors in the hospital aren't. So you show up in the back of an ambulance, having somehow made sure that the hospital that you're being taken to is covered by your insurer. But then every person you speak to, 
you have to ask them whether they're also covered by your insurer to find out whether or not you're going to get a multi-thousand dollar bill for being treated. And as the power consolidates into just a few hands, the ability of those large medical firms, those profiteers, to um, extract better policies from the government, even as they extract more money from patients and even as they deliver worse outcomes for those patients and even as they extract more concessions from their workers because although hospital administrators are keeping their six-figure bonuses and their seven-figure salaries the doctors and nurses are taking pay cuts emergency room front frontline medical care workers are taking pay cuts they're being converted into hourly um, employees and taking pay cuts because the uh corporate owners of the hospital aren't getting the money that they normally see, the gravy money they normally see from elective procedures. So if that happens, if we end up where all of the levers of power are in the hands of the people who invented surprise billing and cut doctors pay, emergency room doctors pay during a pandemic, then we're in really deep trouble. Now, maybe that will be so bad that it precipitates the kind of extreme feeling maybe not the extreme action in, in radicalized. Just for the record here, I don't think people should become terrorists and <laughs> kill health uh, healthcare executives. But maybe it will precipitate. Maybe it'll be the crisis that brings on the change. You know, maybe they'll start building guillotines on the lawns of the Providence Hospital chain where they they uh, charged my daughter $2,800 for an x-ray and a Tylenol when she broke her collarbone and didn't even get to see a doctor over and above the uh, gold-plated Cigna insurance that we have through my wife's job as a vice president at a multinational media company. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe not, right? And if not, oh my goodness, are we stuffed. Now, maybe this is also the crisis that precipitates a complete turnaround in our politics. I mean, people are really upset. I mean, legitimately so. The 94.5% of the first round of small business PPP relief went to multi-million dollar corporations and not to small businesses. The second round has been snapped up by uh, organizations like elite private schools, like like uh, Steve Mnuchin's uh, kids' private school and the private school that Barron Trump goes to. These are schools with multi-million dollar endowments that charge $40,000 a year and up to attend them. People are really upset, right? The third round of small business relief, it looks really likely that uh, included in the package will be lobbyists, right? So the lobbyists for Coca-Cola and Saudi Aramco will get bailouts for a firm whose only function is to give money to lawmakers. So lawmakers are going to give money to people whose job it is to give money to them. I mean, this is the human centipede Washington style, right? So maybe the outrage will finally be enough that we do something about it. And as you say, join the rest of the civilized world with uh, Medicare for all. But, you know, who knows? And of course, we have an unforeseeable future, right? Like, like everybody in the running to be president on both parties right now is at a high risk for coronavirus, yeah. right? Like they could all be dead by November. Almost everyone on the Supreme Court is at a high risk for coronavirus. They could all be dead by November. Almost everyone who holds levers of power and senior positions in the Senate and the House could also be dead of coronavirus by November, especially if we're going to reopen the country long before we're ready, even as Trump's CDC leaks its PowerPoint document to The New York Times that predicts 3,000 deaths a day 
by the end of this month, right? One 9-11 every day by the end of this month, right? So who knows what our political situation will be like by November, but maybe, right? Maybe, maybe people will be so upset that that peak indifference will finally have arrived and will be ready to do something about it. I certainly hope so. Yeah, I, you know, I never thought about, yeah, the age of our leaders in, in the way that you just stated it. So maybe, I mean, you know, not that I want to see anybody go, but I'm just saying, yeah, we could have a completely profoundly different uh, makeup <laughs> in November. So yeah, well, you know, they, they say physics progresses one funeral at a time, right? Like, how about politics? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Next question is about the fourth book in the novella, uh, The Mask of the Red Death, which was personally my favorite of the four stories. And I'm thinking that Shauna's favorite story was Unauthorized Bread. Mine was The Mask of the Red Death. But anyway, it's eerily timely, of course, and that's what we're, we're all here talking about today. But what would you like the world to look like after our current pandemic? And what do you think the world will look like? Which I know is a really huge, tough question. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the world is going to look like. If I did, I would not be a science fiction writer. Uh, I would be, I don't know, a, a stock picker or possibly a sorcerer. <laughs> but but I'll tell you like why I, I, I try to shy away from predictions. Because I think predictions are intrinsically fatalistic. Because the, the implication of a prediction is that what you do doesn't matter. Because the future is arriving, right? We're not driving a car we're in a runaway train and that train is going to go where the tracks take it and and we're just passengers and i don't think we're passengers right i th i think we get to steer so the, i have a, a colleague ada palmer is this brilliant science fiction writer but she's also like several other kinds of brilliant professional she's um, a singer and librettist uh, and she's a tenured history professor at the University of Chicago, where her specialty is Florence during the Renaissance and the Inquisitions. And she studies forbidden knowledge, uh, heresy, homosexuality, witchcraft, heterodoxy, uh, all kinds of awesome stuff. Right. And um, she every year has her undergraduates do a live action role playing game that goes on for a month in which they reenact the election of the Medici's Pope. So she assigns every single undergrad an identity of a real person from Florence during the election of the Pope. And um, they, over the course of weeks, form alliances, stab each other in the back, and so on. And then on the final day, she, she's got a Google alert for uh, theater companies that are selling off their old costumes. She dresses them all up as 17th century Florentines, and they, they elect a Pope. And every year, two of the final four candidates are the same. And every year, two of the final four candidates are different and are never the same from year to year. And that's because there are great forces of history that bend us in a certain direction. But all those great forces do is influence what future we're going to have. We determine which future we're going to have. Those two other people, those are two people who they, um, who, who human agency has put into the final four. And so I don't know what's going to happen after this crisis because I think we get to decide what happens after this crisis. Like, I think we have agency. I think, I think if we are fed up enough, we can make stuff happen. You know, just before the Russian Revolution, there were, this, there were these series of peasant rebellions where, you know, some group of like 
you know, barefooted uh, uh, dirt farmers in an outer province would get it into their heads to stop paying rent to their feudal lord. And the czar would send overwhelming force to put down the rebellion. And on the basis of this, uh, people who advocated for a political change in Russia they said, uh, oh, th this is crazy. Why would you do this now? Look at how strong the czar is. Even these tiny little nothing uprisings are, uh, he's got so much power that he can throw a hundred horsemen at them. Actually, it turned out that the reason that the czar was so worried about these tiny uprisings is because he knew that he was at the end of his power, that he was in the weakest position of any czar in Russian history, and that any tiny spark could be fanned into a flame that wiped out his whole regime, as it did. It is impossible to know in the moment whether the reason you seem so horribly outmatched is because your adversaries believe that they're at the end of their strength or because your adversaries are so strong that they don't care if they're wasting their strength in putting down your tiny little rebellion. Oh, that was really, yeah, that was amazing. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Wow. Okay. That gives us a lot to think about, but now I want to be part of that, that little rebellion. I want to be a part of that um, for sure. Cause we need, there are so many things that need to change and I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we don't just go through this process, this horrific time and that it, it all comes out the same way as when we started. I just pray that it, it is going to be different. I don't think it can be the same. I, I said that, but you know, then I worry that you know, then sometimes you see the polls and the current president of the United States, all of a sudden you see people are still supporting him and you think, how, how can you still support him after all of this? But then, it, then I get worried again. So I'm just praying that uh, we do the right thing in whatever way that is. I mean, there's so many things we need to correct before there is sort of a right way, but I, I hope that we do something different than what we've been doing because that's the, as they say, the definition of insanity, right? Okay, our last question for you is kind of simple, maybe. I don't know, but what keeps you up at night? Yeah, it, it all keeps me up at night, right? I mean, the thing that worries me is not that we will never realize that we need a change, but that by the time we realize it'll be either too late or it will feel too late. Because the, the flip side of denial is nihilism, right? That like, if, 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 you spend years and years trying to convince your best friend that they should care about rhino populations. And then one day you come to them and you say, look, there's just one rhino left. Do you believe me now? They're as likely to say, yeah, you were right, as they are to say, yeah, you were right. And why do we find out what he tastes like? Because it's too late to do anything about it. Right? That's what I worry about is nihilism. And, and hope is not optimism. Right? Hope is the belief that if you change your circumstances, you can, from a new vantage point, find a way to change your circumstances again that make them a little better, right? Hope is why you tread water when the ship sinks, not because you have any chance of being picked up, but because everyone who was ever picked up did that, right? It's the necessary but insufficient precondition for a better world is hope. And so the thing that keeps me up at night is that we'll lose hope, right? That we, we won't try to take any step to improve our situation because we'll have given up right i you know i look at people like david coke who who's quite a complicated character or charles coke rather quite a complicated character not i think a good person but clearly very smart and one of the things that charles coke did when he took over his father's coal business 
is having been trained as an engineer, he went out and he bought a bunch of um, mining and refining equipment that had very long-term payoffs, like 10 and 15-year amortization schedules. And this is something none of his competitors were doing because they all wanted short-term payoffs. A lot of them were running publicly traded businesses and couldn't afford to tell their investors to just be patient. And 15 or 20 years later, that paid off so well that he'd grown the business a thousandfold, right? That is clearly like a super smart guy. But Charles Koch is willing to roast the planet and doom all of our children because the short-term pain of retooling for renewables is not worth it in his mind for the long-term gain of not rendering our species extinct and the only planet we know that is fit for human habitation no longer fit for human mm -hmm. habitation, right? And so that's what I worry about, that people who are even good at thinking about the long game have these giant blind spots where, you know, as Upton Sinclair said, it's impossible to get a man to understand something when his paycheck depends on him not understanding it, you know, that we just might end up, it just might end up being too late. That's, that's what keeps me up at night. Do you think any of this is subjected to being generational? Like, I know there have been huge debates on whether millennials and Gen Zs are ever going to do anything to help the world. Do you think that could be a factor in how some of this could work out? Maybe. I mean, certainly, like, generationally, there's some pretty uh, hope, hopeful signs, you know, when you see the polls uh, that, that kids are, um, you know, a little more willing to think about state intervention in markets. They're more, they, they, they think more about the climate, you know, and so on. But um, I also think that, like, you know, I wrote this, I wrote these YA books, uh, Little Brother and Homeland, and there's, there's a third one coming out of Tax Surface in October, uh, although that one's for adults. It's a standalone. But these YA books, one of the slogans in it is don't trust anyone over 25. And uh, the, the characters actually like they attain glory by forming coalitions with older people, right? By, by getting past this, this sloganeering and actually realizing that, that they have a lot more in common with these other people and that we we're, we're you know, you have to save everyone, right? If you just save the kids then you're 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 hosed and i think that there are lots and lots of older people who are um perfectly capable of understanding the danger that we're in um and they may be disheartened and maybe dispirited and may need the kids to lead them as we saw with say parkland but they're there with them like we we need everyone in the coalition we can't afford to do it on our own you know i i i just I reject that kind of I'm, I'm a leftist and not a liberal right so I reject the idea that the problem with the world is that it's run by 150 old white guys and that the solution is to make half of them women and people of color right like I think the the answer is pluralism right it's to spread power around not to make sure that our oligarchy is demographically representative oh yeah that makes a lot of sense all right. Well, Corey, we just really want to thank you for chatting with us today. And you've given us a lot to think about. And I want to wish you and Akil Augustine the best of luck in the competition. Hopefully it takes place some point this year because uh, Sean and I had tickets for the opening day. And obviously that didn't happen. But oh. I know. But but we, we hope that it really does happen because I think the conversation about all five books, which are fabulous, uh, would be just something that we could all use. And I do think 
I think you guys are going to be front runners now, to be honest with you. So we really do wish you the very best. And thank you so much. Well, that's kind of you. Thank you. And for the record, you know, I think all five books are dynamite. You know, I'm 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 in very good company here. We loved all of them. We kind of chatted about all of them, and we've even had some people on to talk about their some Canadian friends, new friends of ours that have talked about them as well. Sean and I, about a year ago, just kind of jumped on the Canada Reads wagon, and we just have loved it so much. And, and I'm reading more and more Canadian authors and, and loving it. And I will tell you that originally, when uh, we read your book first of the five, and it's not, I'm not really a sci-fi kind of reader, and I just immediately was captivated by it and could not put it down. We read, both of us read it really fast. We had lots of discussions about all four stories, and so thank you for keeping us, getting us so engaged in it, and the writing was fabulous. The stories behind the stories, we just loved all of it, so thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. Uh, hang in there, guys. Keep washing your hands. Thanks for the work you're doing at your libraries. You know, it's a funny time to be alive, that's for sure. To our listeners, if you would like us to continue providing great content like this, please like, share, comment, and tell all your friends about Canada Reads American Style. Bye!